Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And it's springtime in Boise. And the most welcome harbinger of springtime in Boise, the Idaho legislature, is just about adjourned. Basically, the work is done. The formalities and the moving of bills from the third floor to the second floor and various other procedural stuff still has to be done. But for all practical purposes, the session came to an end on Thursday. Not a moment too soon, right, Kevin? <laughs> Especially for those of you who are going to Tree Ford, uh, yeah. you know, are, are happy to see the, the session coming to a close. So let's pick up where we left off a week ago. We spent last week's podcast talking a lot about the impasse over the reading test and kind of giving a sense of why the legislature was kind of wrapped around the axle on that issue. What happened this week was the uh, the impasse broke fairly quickly and fairly smoothly when it came down to rewriting that budget. It wasn't the dramatic fight uh, that we anticipated after no. Friday. Obviously, things blew up in a big way last Friday, a week ago today. On the House floor, we thought that it was likely that that uh, fight would extend the session, but it was pretty well wrapped up by Tuesday morning, and it ended up not um, extending the session. They uh, Let's talk about the solution. You yeah. saw it first uh, in JFAC, uh, the Joint Budget Committee, on Tuesday morning. The fight was over Superintendent Ibarra's budget, which was killed Friday. The heart of that fight involved our state reading test, and basically the reason that matters is it's the mechanism for identifying uh, struggling young readers and then targeting uh, intervention and support money to help them out. get back to grade-level reading benchmarks. But tell me about uh, the budget solution that essentially paved the way for the legislature to wrap up its business. Right. So this started to unfold Tuesday morning in the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee uh, when the budget was taken up again. The bottom line this is the budget that passed. This is the budget that now, now goes to Governor Otter's desk. It includes and frees up about $550,000, all told, to go towards the statewide reading assessment. And what it does is it it's money that will now be used to roll out the new statewide reading test. This yep. is a test that we've written about before that's been tested, piloted in more than 50 schools across the state. So the 550000 will take the state from the pilot phase on this new test to a full-blown implementation. So if you're a K-3 through teacher, you're going to see a new test. If you're the parent of a K-3 through student, you're going to see a new assessment being used to kind of give you a sense of how your, how your child is doing in reading. There was a little bit of drama in JFAC. Uh, Senator Dean Mortimer, who also is chairman of the Senate Education Committee, who's been one of the leading opponents of going to... Uh, a full-blown implementation of the statewide test. He tried to push the committee to put less money into the test and extend the pilot program for one more year. That never really came up for a vote. The motion that did come up for a vote uh, over the objections of uh, Senator Mortimer and a couple of other members of JFAC was the motion that freed up the 550000 We saw that bill pass the House. You were there on the mm -hmm. House floor on Wednesday, passed the Senate fairly easily. Both chambers passed uh, the bill with overwhelming support. Yeah. Uh, a smattering of opposition, notably uh, Julie Van Orden, the House Education Committee chair. Debated against it. Debated against it on the House floor. Mortimer uh, debated against it. He, well, he, he didn't really debate against it, and he kind of explained his vote, and he used a poem 
to outline his opposition to the bill. But the votes were pretty much uh, were pretty much set in stone by that point. I think uh, I think Mortimer and probably Van Orden uh, could see the writing on the wall last week. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of interest or support in going to some other approach, more of a local approach, local option approach, let, let school districts uh, pick their reading assessment. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of appetite in the legislature for that. I think that was clear from the House vote on Friday, rejecting a budget that didn't have money for the statewide test. So you could kind of see the impasse breaking even early in the week. As, as we got to work on Monday, we were hearing uh, indications that things were going to break and things were going to um, unfold more quickly than maybe we expected going in. Yeah, and that they were going to handle it through the budget rather than running a new policy bill. And that is exactly uh, what happened by by Tuesday. Um, but what I, think, but what I think is interesting, and maybe we take a step back here, um, I think what you saw with the legislative pushback on this test, it might be a signal for what we see on other education initiatives in the future. Uh, what this came down to, you know, some legislators really concerned about going forward with a test without a lot of data to support how effective that test is, how, how, how effective is it at identifying at-risk readers and helping teachers get the kids the help that they really need to get up to speed. As we go into a lot of these education initiatives, whether it's uh, the reading test, or this whole reading initiative, this whole literacy initiative where $13 million is going to go into next year, or whether it's advanced opportunities or mastery-based learning uh, or college and career advisors. I think I'm sensing from some legislators a mood of, okay, we're funding this. It all sounds like a good idea. It sounds like we're going in the right direction, but let's see some data. Let's see some, some return on investment and get a sense of how this is really working on the ground. So Maybe what we saw here these closing weeks of the session is a, a hint of what we may see in future sessions. I don't know. It'll be worth watching. Well, I think you're right about that. And I think we also saw that in JFAC earlier this year when we talk about some of the evaluations and some of the audits that JFAC requested along with some of the education programs. And it does come back to what are we spending our money on? Are the taxpayers getting a return on the investment? Is this new test working in the way that it should be working and the way that we were told it will be working. And and there's just some general heartburn still over the issue just at a very basic level having to do with multi-year contacts, contracts, multi-year contracts, and large statewide contracts. Mm-hmm. That, those have burned legislators in the past and they have been embarrassed and caught off guard. And so there's still some heartburn just at a very basic level about the structure of those programs. Right. I think anytime you invoke the Idaho Education Network, the broadband contract fiasco, anytime you mention that around the state house, that gets legislators very concerned about the specter of going into a multi-year contract, going into a statewide contract. So there's there is angst. And I think that was that, that, that was kind of the undertone that we were hearing as the debate over the reading test unfolded. Yeah. So I think, you know, you might see legislators in 2019 and beyond really exercising their uh, role in terms of due diligence on a lot of these education initiatives. Uh, We'll want to see what these audits have to say, what the results of these studies have to say, and how do legislators act on the information once they've got it in their hands. So, yeah, 
Well, this fight is over and this uh, session is for all intents and purposes history. I think it sends a, a message, uh, maybe sets a tone that we may see uh, replicate in, in future sessions on future topics. And we've seen this in past legislative sessions where there are moves at the end of a session Maybe designed not to change something dramatically in the moment, but to send a message or set the tone going forward. We've seen education budgets die before. We've seen protest votes before. We've seen people take what appear to be deep, firm stands late in legislative sessions. And sometimes uh, that could be sending a message. Sometimes that could be setting the tone for the future. Sometimes that could be looking ahead towards elections. There could be a lot of different reasons why we see these mm -hmm. things, right? Yeah, it, it, to use a sports analogy, a, a basketball analogy, it's, you know, coaches are always kind of working officials. They don't expect officials to ever change a call because that hardly ever happens. But they're kind of sending that message. I've got my eye see, on you. you know, and, and trying to get, uh, get the official to think differently the next time something comes along. That may have been a little bit of an element of what you saw on the reading test. While I think uh, the critics really have you know, deep-seated concerns about the test, I think they also are, are looking maybe at the long game. A lot of other big education initiatives uh, still unfolding uh, across the state. So we'll see uh, how the how this is, issue unfolds in the future. Sure. We've been here seven today's the 75th day of the legislative session. It'll go well, on. Who's counting? Uh, and I, I am. Oh, uh, me too. Okay. It, it'll go on at least until Tuesday, yes. at least in the house. We know that you had an awesome article Kevin that you published on Thursday, the 2018 legislature, a not too early look back and I think that that's really important. It's easy to get overwhelmed by this legislative session and just sort of throw off our hands and say, thank goodness it's over, let's never think about this again. Uh, but you did the opposite. You have a piece where you kind of break down what happened, who the winners and losers are, what this means if you're a student, what this means if you're a taxpayer, a parent, a, a teacher. But let's go through and hit some of the highlights and put this session in a little bit of context now and, and just sort of back up and tell people what... What did we do? What mattered? Who were the winners and losers? Do you want to start with the education budget? Where do you want to start? Well, let's walk through a couple of the quick highlights of this session. And I go into much more detail yep. at idohednews.org. I break down a bunch of issues that we heard this session, that got resolved this session, or didn't get resolved this session, and kind of looked at what does that mean to students and parents and teachers, and who won and who lost politically. Uh, one of the big, one of the big, you know, defining uh, pieces of the uh, the education uh, landscape this year was the budget, obviously, and another round of teacher pay raises, uh, which I think is a victory for the process because this is part of that five year plan. That, it's uh, more than forty million dollars. We've held together on a, a multi year plan. It passed comfortably. Everybody was talking about it as a priority before the session. That coalition remained together, and it got through without issue. But I think that's the easiest thing to wrap your arms around, something real, real tangible that mm -hmm. happened this year. Uh, there's money attached to it. Uh, teachers are going to be getting a raise. We know that there continue to be issues with teacher retention, recruitment. recruitment alternative uh, certification. So, again, I think that's one of those topics where I think, you know, we're going to want to see what is this doing on the ground? How is this affecting school districts? as they deal with teacher shortages, as they deal with recruitment and retention. But the bottom line, another $40 million-plus infusion into teacher salaries. Obviously, one of the highlights of the session, uh, the resolution on the science standards issue, 
after three sessions, new standards put into place. Uh, you have to kind of give the upper hand to the Senate Education Committee on this one. They exercise veto authority over the House's moves to edit uh, language out of those science standards. Bottom line, after three sessions, we have uh, science standards on the books that will stay in place for five years. We'll find something else to write about in 2019. And this was uh, this was a big issue for a long time. Uh, but just to recap, uh, approved science standards in full with references to climate change, fossil fuels, human impact in the environment, uh, left intact. Those will go on the books in terms of science standards. And that's a minimum uh, that, that our teachers, that educators will use across the state. But I thought it was a fascinating process uh, to play out. I think there were a couple examples where we saw the Senate Education Committee kind of play foil to the House Education Committee. Uh, This was a real clear-cut example. And that was just fascinating to me. I love watching a committee play defense, and I love watching these two committees interact with each other. When I was a rookie uh, legislative reporter working for the Post Register and in Idaho Falls, I love to watch the interplay between the House State Affairs Committee, uh, which was this wild, unpredictable, very conservative committee, and the things that they would send over to Senate State Affairs, which would inevitably which is a leadership kill committee uh, a moderate, parties. stacked with leadership, uh, and they would inevitably kill things every year that House State Affairs sent over to them. We started seeing a little bit this year between. House education and Senate education, science standards. Saw a prime um, example with the uh, private school scholarship. That was bill another that example. Narrowly passed the House, didn't get a hearing in the Senate Education Committee, and I sense that there is some hard feelings between members of the House Committee and the Senate Committee, members of the House and members of the Senate about uh, a bill that did pass the House, didn't get a hearing on the Senate side. The fact that that bill passed the House suggests to me that this issue isn't going in, away anytime soon. There is uh, a cadre of support in the State House for, for moving this direction. There's also deep-seated opposition from the education groups, from the State Board of Education, skepticism, uh, obviously, uh, on the Senate side of the rotunda. So I would be really, really surprised if that issue doesn't resurface in some manner, in some form in 2019 will obviously be watching very closely for that. Yeah, obviously the sponsor felt hurt uh, and, and, and said at one point, he told the press corps that he would never have brought the bill if it wasn't going to get a hearing mm-hmm. in the Senate. And then Senate Education Chairman Dean Mortimer came over about that time and had a hearing in the House Education Committee on a different bill, got a little bit of a hard time in terms of tough questions and a longer hearing than he may have been expected. So I thought all that stuff was just fascinating as a political observer. And that was Dean Mortimer's school turnaround bill, which eventually got pulled off of the House floor abruptly in the final couple of days of the legislative session, didn't even come down for a vote on the House floor. Probably not a lot of tears shed in the House over seeing his bill die. I I sense that uh, it would have been an interesting hearing, and maybe that's uh, why there wasn't a hearing uh, on the House floor on that one. But uh, anyway, if you go to ednews.org, I will run down more than a dozen issues that came up during this legislative session. There's a school safety bill that was signed on Friday morning, college scholarships, Mm -hmm. uh, a number of different things. If you want to kind of, you know, what did we accomplish? What did we do here in the last 
75 days and running. Uh, that's a great piece. So head over and look to that on the homepage. And you will on Monday, early part of next week. Early anyway, next week. I don't know about Monday. Uh, you're going to pivot a little bit uh, off of the legislative session to start to cover the primary in uh, the state superintendent's race. You've got a piece that you're working on looking at uh, state superintendent Sherry Ibarra's session, what she accomplished, what she didn't get done, what she got done. Uh, I don't want you to uh, give away too much of what you're working on, but that's a piece that, you're, uh, that you've got in the hopper, right? Yeah, I've done, already done some interviews. I spoke with the superintendent uh, by phone on Thursday, and I think this is really going to be a piece that people are going to be interested in and will be talking about after it's published. I talked to the superintendent about her legislative priorities, about how she felt the year went. Uh, no surprise, this is language she's used before. She said she was thrilled. She said it was a great year uh, for education, and she went into a number of reasons why. Um, I also talked to some legislators and some different folks around the state house uh, about uh, the superintendent's year and about their interactions with the superintendent. And we also know uh, that you know she may well be thrilled with how the year went. She had a bad week. Uh, mm -hmm. Earlier this month, where she lost a couple of big legislative priorities. Uh, one, the Rural Schools Center failed spectacularly <laughs> on the House floor. Um, and, uh, the mastery bill failed in the Senate Education Committee also spectacularly. I mean, there's very little support. And she was, she was the superintendent. Superintendent Ybarra was kind of involved, at least tangentially, in a lot of these big issues that we saw play out. She was there and she spoke at the science standards hearings. Um, you know, she presented her budget uh, to JFAC, and although JFAC went with a different budget, some of the things that she recommended did make it in there. And so uh, she had some high highs and some low lows, and we'll really explore that in a way that I think people will find interesting and that will set up uh, our coverage of the primary, which will keep me busy all throughout April. I've reached out to the candidates that are running for state superintendent. I'll be taking the lead on that race. I'll be shadowing and introducing people to the candidates, especially the newest uh, candidates to file the two Democrats mm -hmm. who've entered the race. Uh, but it's going to be a, a, a sprint uh, from yeah. here forward to the uh, uh, to the primary in mid-May. Right. And, and in Superintendent DeBarra's case, the performance, uh, the, the record from 2018's legislative session really does provide a, a good pivot to look towards uh, the election. And we are in a sprint mode, less than two months away from the primary. Yeah, in fairness, I mean, we point out rural, we point out the uh, the mastery bill, uh, some some real uh, setbacks for Superintendent DeBarra. In all fairness, uh, she was on the prevailing side on the debate over the reading test, uh, science standards. Uh, she was one of many education leaders who opposed the private school scholarship bill. So it's a mixed bag, as, as it tends to be yeah. with uh, most politicians and most legislative sessions. She pushed for raises for teachers strongly. Uh, she pushed for discretionary spending uh, and help with health care for school districts. And Although, that's a case where she prevailed over Governor yeah. Otter, who didn't want to have yeah. funding in that So arena. she absolutely had some high highs and, and some very tangible victories. Uh, but we'll get into... Uh, how it's more complicated than that. And we'll get into that early next week. I don't know for sure that it will be by Monday. I have some follow-up work to do, but it will be the first half of next week. And I think that's one that you won't want uh, yeah. to miss. It, it, it's an interesting story. Start looking for it Monday, but don't uh, be too worried if it isn't Monday. It'll be worth the wait. All right. One last topic I want to get into. Uh, we filed a complaint against the Sugar Salem School District in eastern Idaho. Uh, and 
Spoiler alert, the board took it badly. But Kevin... Things escalated, let's just put it that way. Let's talk about why this was so important to us. It's not... You wouldn't normally expect a news organization to be filing complaints against school districts that it covers. This is the second time we've done it. But let's talk about how this related to their hiring of a new school superintendent and our concerns that it was done in secret. And so we complained to the prosecutor's office. The issue in Sugar Salem, and we've seen this before, is uh, with the identification of finalists for a superintendent's job. Uh, the crux of the matter was that uh, the district didn't fully identify the candidates, the finalists for the superintendent's job. Uh, minutes from one of the board meetings said that the job was offered to a candidate O. We later found out who, who candidate O is when it became public who the, uh, who the new superintendent was going to be. Um, and that's a transparency concern, obviously, to us. I mean, there is a, there's a balance in state law pertaining to the hiring process. Uh, school boards do have the prerogative of discussing hiring decisions in closed executive sessions. That's clearly laid out in the state law, but you can't vote in an executive session. You can't deliberate towards a decision in executive session. So it's a bit of a fine line, but when you go into an open session and you're getting to the point of offering a contract and offering a job uh, to a superintendent, in our view, that's clearly when this becomes a public process. We're, we're clearly, patrons in that district have an absolute right to know who's been offered the job, where this candidate's coming from, and, and be able to you know, draw their own conclusion about uh, the hiring process when the hiring process becomes public. That was the crux of our complaint. As you mentioned, um, to, this really surprised me as I watched it from afar, how the issue escalated. Um, you know, looking at some of the draft minutes from the, uh, from the Sugar Salem School Board, one of the trustees floated the idea of seeking a restraining order against us. Because they did uh, not want us to call them and ask them any questions. And, you know, look, look I've been doing... Completely inappropriate for any level of government. Yeah, yeah. It's an embarrassment. It, 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 yeah, I mean, and I was going to say, I mean, I've been at this a long time. I've been reporting and editing for over 30 years in this state, and I do not recall ever hearing an elected official float the idea of seeking a restraining order against reporters, keeping reporters from doing their job. Um, I mean, what part of Congress shall make no law is unclear in the First Amendment? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one issue. I mean, obviously we're going to, you know, you know we're going to have an opinion about this because this is our job. This is our passion. This is our calling as journalists. The, the end of this uh, episode is that you know, Sugar Salem did uh, correct the actions from the hiring and, and kind of did this the self-curing process, which is allowed under the uh, open meeting law. We now know who was, uh, who was hired, who the finalists were. Uh, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this is an issue that we're going to fight for. Uh, we're going to fight for transparency. It's not personal, but it's very much something we're passionate about because of our profession. We demand transparency. It's, it's essential to us doing our job, but it's not just transparency for us. I, I, think, uh, I think patrons are owed transparency as well. I think people in the community are owed transparency. I mean, when you're hiring a superintendent, when you're hiring the CEO of the school district, who may be the CEO of the largest employer in that community, that has to be a transparent process. That is 
undebatable in my view. It absolutely is undebatable. We cited the Idaho open meeting law and our complaint, and, and that's exactly why it matters. The schools are the center of many communities all across Idaho and all across this nation. Our local schools are the hub of communities. Uh, it's where our children are educated. We pay our taxpayers to support we pay our tax dollars to support those schools. The new superintendent's salary and benefits will all be covered with taxpayer yeah. money. We think that the public's business needs to be done in public, and that's all we're saying here. But let me give you an example. Can you imagine if Boise State University, if, if the State Board of Education held a meeting to hire the next football coach at Boise State University, and they said, all right, guys, we've made our decision. It's candidate O. <laughs> we'll tell you more when we feel like telling yeah. you. People Come to the season opener and see who candidate O is. It people really would lose their minds and be marching in the streets with pitchforks and torches. It would be unacceptable. And so if it's unacceptable for a football coach, why would it be acceptable for a school board to pseudonymously hire the new superintendent who will lead that school, who will probably be the highest paid individual in that city, who will be the head of the largest employer, who will be responsible for setting education, implementing education policy to educate all children in that community. It is a very important hire, and it should be done in a transparent way so that the public, the taxpayers, the parents, the employees, the students all know what's happening. And, and especially when you see best practices occurring across the state, cases where the hiring process is very open. I mean, you mentioned the state board. The state board is in the process of hiring three university presidents right now. And to their credit, this process is a, a very open process. They've been pretty transparent about who the finalists are, who the final three candidates are. They, they, they've been putting out a lot of... Uh, press advisories about where they are in the process on these three campuses. You know, you've had finalists coming to the campuses to meet with students, meet with the faculty, meet with the community. That's a very transparent process. And you see school districts doing similar processes when they hire superintendents. That's how it should be done. I mean, now, it should be as inclusive and as open and as participatory a process as it can possibly be. And you do see examples of that occurring. So when you see examples that you know, run counter to the letter and the spirit of open government, I mean, that's something we're going, to, we're going to go to the mat for. That's, that's just, it's undebatable that this should be a public process and that's something we're going to continue to fight for. And Sugar Salem, by self-correcting, in layman's terms, they took a do-over. Mm -hmm. um, that basically solved the issue. Um, but we want it done right the first time. And I mean, just a heads up, if you are a school board member listening to this podcast today and you have a decision to make about hiring a superintendent for the upcoming school year, Please if you mask that candidate's identity, if you hide that from the public, we will, we will fight that. We will fight that on behalf of the taxpayers. We will complain to your local county prosecutor. Uh, we will write articles about it, and we will push like heck to get that information out before the public, any school district anywhere in the state yeah, of Idaho. And, and again, it's not personal, but it is in the public spirit. It is something that we're very passionate about. So uh, Devin Bodkin, our Eastern Idaho reporter, has a, a full rundown of what happened in Sugar Sale and how this all unfolded with links to the paper trail, the letters from, uh, from our attorney, uh, from the district, uh, from the county prosecutor. So check that all out.
I think that covers us for this week, yeah. this final, pseudo-final week of the legislative session. We won't have much legislative stuff to talk about next week unless something crazy happens between now and the final adjournment. But uh, we'll have plenty to plenty to talk about and plenty to write about in the uh, days and weeks to come. Yep. If you're a Tree Fort fan or a fan of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television, you can catch Kevin this afternoon taping the live pundit segment, and then that should be broadcast uh, later Friday night, and then I know again on Sunday morning mm-hmm. on the Idaho Reports show on Idaho Public Television. You can also check that out on, your web, on their website, and I know you'll be kind of wrapping up the legislative session talking about uh, how adjournment came together, yeah, looking ahead to adjournment still, but I mean, we're basically there. Uh, so that'll be a good program uh, if you want to dig in a little bit more about the politics that are, are helping close out our session. And we will be back with another edition of the podcast. We'll find something post-legislative to talk about. Congratulations on surviving another session. Yeah, thank you as well, you as well. I, um, and I, my, my pick for adjournment is still alive and well. I pick Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., in the official pool, uh, so I'm feeling pretty good about that at this point. But uh, I'm well, sure they'll find a way. I'm sure they'll find a way to uh, to spoil that for me in the end. But as always, thanks so much uh, for listening. You can follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter for all of our breaking stories. We have a lot of fun with the Extra Credit Podcast, and appreciate you tuning in every week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.